Hey there, welcome to the Snakebird Podcast. My name's Josh. And I'm Steve. Together we invite you to join us. As we explore the mysteries of Scripture. The realm of God. And freedom through Christ. So spread out your wings. And slither in place. Because this is Snakebird. Hey, welcome Snakebirds to another episode of the Snakebird Podcast. In today's podcast, we are taking on the fight of the ages for the ages and by the ages, or at least the first part of it, and that is creation versus evolution. That's right, guys. We hope you prepared yourself for today's episode because it's going to be a toasty one. Toasty. We have had several requests to open this can of worms, and today we're finally going to dip our toes in the primeval stew, you might say. <laughs> the great debates between creation and evolution. That's some gross stew, man. <laughs> yeah, for real. And straight out of the gate, Josh and I want to make a few things clear. And number one, this is going to be part one of we don't know for sure how many others because (laughs) (laughs) we're hoping that one or two more episodes revisited on a later date um, will cover the rest of what we cannot fully cover today. But um, one thing we know is this. This topic is too deep to just skim the waters on. So it would be a disservice to you, the listener, if we tried to do that. Exactly. Yeah. And number two, all the information that we will be discussing and presenting in this episode are not our own. We recognize that there's a lot of false information out there, which is presented by people pretending to be experts. Josh and I are not experts on these things we're going to talk about, but we are, however, extremely fortunate to live in the information age, where the peer-reviewed information from true experts is readily available to those willing to do the research. And as we will see, whether an atheist or a creationist, either road takes great faith. Oh my gosh, I believe that so much. I've always said that I believe it takes more faith to be an atheist than a Christian. That is accurate. <laughs> and, and, you know, anyway, okay. So I found this quote I'd like to start off with. It says this, No scientist is entirely objective. We are always governed by our assumptions. If a scientist does not believe in God, then his starting point of atheism will be bound to affect his judgment as he looks at the world around him. If his mind is closed to the possibility of a designer, his own assumption will force him to adopt what too many will seem an unlikely explanation for what he observes. And that's from Andrew McIntosh. So one of the most unknown things about evolution is the fact that it is not a modern discovery. Did you know that? Of course you did. (laughs) In fact, long before Darwin, the Greek philosopher Epicurean produced an evolutionary theory around 300 BC from a theory of Democritus. It's actually kind of a red flag to see the consistency of philosophers to invent alternatives to God going all the way back to Alexander the Great. Yeah, from a biblical worldview, it seems that Satan's just been testing the waters with evolutionary ideas even that far back. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, you'd say Al Gore with climate change in the 90s. We just weren't ready for it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Just joking. And he invented the internet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But seriously, you're right. Ideas have been floating around for quite a while that suggest that there is no God. But rather than try to do a history lesson all the way back to Alexander the Great, let's address the real elephant in the room. And that would be, why should we even be having a discussion on whether evolution is a real thing or not? Oh, wow. Well, there's so many people that have heard that evolution is a fact for so long that anyone who believes otherwise is considered ignorant. We we know that. I mean, unfortunately, the way that it's been taught in public schools, things like that. 
So because this is such a heated topic, we really want to break this down on a deeper level by asking some honest questions from the mouths of respected scientists who are whistleblowers on the data put forth to support evolution. People hear so often the phrase exact science and in turn believe anything that scientists say. And while science is exact, we are going to see how much of it is included in the theory of evolution. That's very true. Um, and science is supposed to be exact, which is why we're fixing to see what some modern mathematicians say about evolution. But before we do that, let's open the discussion with a quote from Richard Dawkins, who, if you don't know who he is, is one of the fiercest advocates for evolution. And Dawkins says this, Evolution is a fact, beyond reasonable doubt, beyond serious doubt, beyond sane, informed, intelligent doubt. Beyond doubt, evolution is fact. The evidence for evolution is at least as strong as the evidence for the Holocaust. Wow. Yeah, that's a statement, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, it's pretty obvious that he supports that theory. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> but is. even more of an interesting quote by Dawkins is this. Mathematicians can prove things according to one strict view. They are the only people who can. But the best that scientists can do is fail to disprove things while pointing out how hard they tried. I'm really glad to hear Dawkins say that because math is about as exact science as it gets, right? Yeah. I mean, da Vinci himself was quoted saying, No human investigation can be called true science without passing through mathematical tests. And while da Vinci's quote still rings true today, we are now going to turn to some modern mathematicians to shed some unbiased light on just how probable the chances of evolution being an accurate theory are. Yeah, and the mathematicians we'll start off quoting is about as unbiased as it gets. Um, I feel that it's good to mention this because many times when skeptics challenge the credentials of those who believe in a creator, they'll try to point to bias. So to start the math talk off, we turn to Dr. David Berlinski, who holds a PhD from Princeton University and has taught philosophy and mathematics at universities in France and the United States. And that's the very condensed version of his credentials as well. And to prove Berlinski's unbiased approach, he has been quoted saying, I am neither Christian nor fundamentalist. In other interviews, Berlinski has admitted that he doesn't even know how to pray when asked about belief in God. So, not that we celebrate someone doesn't believe in God, but not only is Berlinski unbiased, but he's extremely well known and respected in the scientific community. Berlinski writes, Anytime a science avoids coming to grips with numbers, it's somehow immersing itself in perhaps an unavoidable but certainly an unattractive miasma. So with that being said, let's get into this. What does Berlinski start us off with, Josh? Well, the first point that he makes is that genetics have certain boundaries that cannot be crossed. And if they could be crossed, at our current level of genetic understanding, then scientists should be able to present observable experiments that prove it out. He writes, we should be able to start manipulating organisms. When we look at dogs, no matter how far back we go, it's dogs. And when we look at bacteria, no matter what we do, they stay bugs. They don't change their fundamental nature. There seems to be some sort of inherent species limitation, and we have no good explanation for this in terms of Darwinian theory. We should have far more flexibility, far more plasticity under laboratory conditions than we actually do if Darwinian theory or anything like that were correct. You know, I've watched a lot of interviews with Dr. Berlinski, and I've read a lot of his books, too, which are actually difficult to get through. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, but the most obvious thing about his comments towards the theory of evolution is that he is driven by the data. 
And his opposition comes not from the theory stepping on his belief system's toes, but from the data itself. So to wrap this intro up, we're going to settle some frequently asked questions by answering them with Berlinski's own words. Josh, let's ask the questions. Okay, so number one, if evolution was false, then why do all the scientists believe in it? Berlinski says... There is a consistent group of people among mathematicians, among physicists, among some very good speculative biologists who simply don't accept it. They don't even regard it as scientific theory in any reasonable sense. Berlinski continues, I know dozens of mathematicians who scratch their heads and say, you guys think this is the way life originated? Absolutely a preposterous theory. So kind of like mob mentality. Yeah. Personally, it's almost like a societal rejection of God. That is that's in there for sure. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> that's all right. In there. Let's continue. Okay. Uh, number two, if all of these alleged scientists don't believe in evolution, why don't we hear from them? Berlinski answers: the political price to questioning Darwinian theory is high. The incentive is low, and that's the natural result: that the community is relatively phlegmatic. Berlinski continues: yeah, biologists do agree that this is the correct theory for the origin and the diversification of life, but. Here are some points you should consider as well. One, the theory doesn't have any substance. Two, it's preposterous. Three, it's not supported by the evidence. And four, the fact that biologists are uniformly in agreement about this issue could as well be explained by some solid Marxist interpretation of their economic interests. Wow. That's a, that's a hard blow, but it rings pretty true when you really break it down. Think about the... Um, Think about the funding issue. Think yeah. about how much has been invested in the theory. Think about all these things, and he makes a solid point with that. Yeah, and if you don't go with the flow, you could be finding yourself on the outside looking in. And think about from the mindset of somebody who's dedicated their entire life to that degree, to that field, Yeah, to be shunned by everyone and lose all of that. Wow. Yeah. And then he sums it up with this. The sciences, many scientists argue, require no criticism because the sciences comprise a uniquely self-critical institution with questionable theories passing constantly before stern appellate review. Judgment is unrelenting and impartial. Individual scientists may make mistakes, but like the Communist Party under Lenin, science is infallible because its judgments are collective. Critics are unneeded, and since they are unneeded, they are not welcome. A system so conceived always works to the satisfaction of those who have conceived it. And that last part about such a system working to the satisfaction of those who conceived it, um, here's three quotes from one man in history who did just that, Vladimir Lenin. Our program necessarily includes the propaganda of atheism. Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. And the last thing I'll say is this. Just because the majority agrees on something doesn't mean what is agreed upon is right. Look no further than Nazi Germany. The term science can be hijacked to promote anything that is projected with the right light. So keep this intro in the back of your mind, listener, as we continue this discussion. Yeah, for sure. So now that the intro is done, why don't we start at the very beginning of how this all supposedly started? And it's uh, you know a very popular show on uh, CBS at one point, but that's the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Big Bang. And the two main sources that we use to understand the expansion of the universe are theoretical physics and direct observations by astronomers. And while the researchers and scientists in these fields have discovered some incredibly amazing things, the ratio of what they have learned to what they have yet to discover is comparable to a droplet of water in the ocean. Yeah. So why don't we start with what the scientists think that they have nailed down? While scientists admit that we have no clue what was going on before the Big Bang or even what caused it, they have pieced together this scenario. When the universe was just a fraction of a second old, a hundredth of a billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second to be exact, it underwent a burst of expansion known as inflation, where space itself expanded faster than the speed of light. At this point, scientists believe the universe doubled in size at least 90 times, going from subatomic size to the size of a golf ball. Just boom. And I couldn't help but think about uh, uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, and then boom. <laughs> yeah. I heard someone say once, you know, I do believe in the Big Bang Theory. God spoke and boom. You know, yeah. it's like it's evidence. We, and we mentioned it, I think, in a previous episode that the Bible is the book of God's words and what we see in science is God's works. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I think that, hey, maybe there was a big bang. Yeah. But we just disagree on where it came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like God clapped. And <laughs> yeah. So, okay. According to NASA, after that split second, uh, air quote, boom, the expansion <laughs> started to progress much slower, which allowed the universe to cool and then matter was formed. So one second after the big bang, the universe was filled with, Neutrons, protons, electrons, anti-electrons, etc. And then light elements were born during the first three minutes after the Big Bang. And then roughly 380,000 years after the Big Bang, this new thing called matter was cool enough for atoms to form and so on and so forth until, well, here we are uh, a few <laughs> bazillion years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I mean, just it, it sounds like they have it nailed down, doesn't it? <laughs> They've got every turn, and they just it's laid out so so perfectly. But the first thing I would say is this: the scientists that have come up with this type of data, or designed computer models that came up with this data, are brilliant. Okay, uh, there's no getting around that. But let me quote a certain Derek Isaacs that I think really fits here. Indeed, in some cases, our sciences have done a very poor job in compiling all that we know. We have allowed isolated fields of specialization to make very broad conclusions. That is inherently problematic. In other words, these specialized experts contract an awful case of tunnel vision and can wind up viewing life through thoroughbred-sized blinders. Furthermore, we have allowed them to shape worldviews light years more complex than the few pixels for which they are responsible. And that really makes a lot of sense to me because we have scientists that speak to the origin of this and that, and they've been given a certain field that they're experts in, mm -hmm. but they're allowed to make these broad conclusions. Way overlapping. Yes, exactly. And one thing that I've noticed over the years in regard to these topics is that scientists don't like the phrase, I don't know. Uh, they might have to say that phrase sometimes, but soon after the admission, they'll explain everything around the unknown. 
Um, case in point, Roger Penrose, very, very popular, well-known among scientists. He wrote a book subtitled, A Complete Guide to the Laws of the Universe. Hawking wrote one titled, The Theory of Everything, The Origin and Fate of the Universe. And these scientists are no doubt brilliant, but what they cannot claim is that they truly know how things came about that far back. And the reason is because of the ratio of what we know versus what we don't. That's true, isn't it? Uh, for instance, in 2014, an announcement was made that scientists had discovered leftover radiation from the Big Bang, but quickly had to retract that as they realized that dust in the Milky Way was the culprit. Exactly. So when we're talking about a universe that contains billions upon billions of galaxies and one little dust with only one of those galaxies distorts the data. I mean, there's no way that any scientist, no matter how smart, could claim that we understand the laws of the universe when in all honesty, our standard model of physics might not even be right according to some data that we've seen in the last decade. Wow. So basically you're saying that we should figure out science on this planet before trying to make <laughs> definitive statements about the ones billions of galaxies away? That's precisely what I'm saying. Uh, okay, so, you know, you talk about the Big Bang, and you're like, well, this happened, and then 380,000 years later, I feel like there's a Seinfeld yada, yada, yada in there. <laughs> so, nice. like, Big Bang happened, matter yeah. formed, cooled, and then yada, yada, yada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, on that, well, what about the age of the Earth? Don't scientists know from dating that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old? Well, it's funny you should ask that because there's some very head-scratching things about the dating of these rocks. Uh, the first odd thing is something that my grandfather pointed out to me once, and that is the fact that scientists will claim one galaxy to be 4.5 billion years old, but date another one to be a billion years different. Um, if all matter originated at the same point, then shouldn't they all date to the same age? But what seems to have happened is some rocks have expanded faster. Remember that first second of life where the universe doubled in size over 90 times? And some got a later start at a slower speed. So could the real issue be that scientists have confused age with distance and speed? I don't know. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but there's something wrong with things being that far off in date when they all originated from the same Point. Exactly. So I'm going to say the thing that scientists hate to say, too. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I know that we do have some strange results from dating rocks on this planet as well. And, uh, you know, they just things didn't go well. I bought hors d'oeuvres. And you know, <laughs> some of you have dated some rocks. Let's just admit it. <laughs> but now good. hopefully you're with your spouse. Okay. Sorry. Um, results from dating rocks. Uh, let me just read some of these results from radiometric dating on rocks that we know are from a certain age. Mount Etna Basalt, Sicily, formed rock at the confirmed age of 122 BC. Radiometric dating claims... 170,000 to 330,000 years old. Mount St. Helens in Washington formed rock at the confirmed age of 1986. That was a really awesome event. Mm -hmm. Tragic, but awesome. Yes. Radiometric dating claims 300 to 400,000 years old. Halua Lua. <laughs> yeah, Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let me try it. Give me, give me space here. <laughs> nope, nope, not going to do it. 
Hula Lai. Okay. <laughs> in Hawaii. Uh, formed rock at the confirmed age of 1800 to 1801. Radiometric dating claims 1.44 to 1.76 million years old. That's a gap. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this really cool mountain in New Zealand. Uh, Nagarojo. Uh, I, I'm actually impressed. That was okay. <laughs> I, was, I was channeling my inner Peter Jackson uh, or, you know, J.R.R. So anyway, um, this rock from New Zealand confirmed of the age of 1954. Radiometric dating claims 3.3 to 3.7 million years old. And then... Kaleu Iki in Hawaii, <laughs> uh, confirmed at the age of 1959, radiometric dating claims 1.7 to 15.3 million years old. That's a giant gap. It's a huge gap. And, you know, there's a lot of times that you'll hear the word contamination thrown out in the mix. You're like, well, it was contaminated test. Mm-hmm. They say that a lot about a lot of different things. And we'll get into that big time in the dating of dinosaur bones. But um, that, that really says a lot, I think. So as far as the Big Bang and universal origins, I think that we should all just agree that we still need to know a lot more, collect a lot more data before claiming that we know all the workings of the universe. Yeah, I totally agree. But I have to say, even though we are skipping over billions of years, we are still fixing to be in that realm of unobservable science. Yes, but at least we'll be on this planet. Yeah. You know, (laughs) as we talk about this, I start to see even just um, within today's culture, the marriage of um, evolution and creation, where some people still believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but they believe that the earth is millions and billions of years old. That's so true. I actually heard a debate once where there were two Christians talking about this, and one of them said, um, well, it can't be, you know, just days old of this creation because it takes millions of years for galaxies to form or something. He he phrased it one way. Yeah. And the guy, he was like, well, that's kind of like saying that Adam and Eve couldn't have been adults because you have to have a belly button to be an adult, you know? <laughs> yeah. But God, he did things that we're not going to be able to get. Yes. And uh, and there has been, there has been a marriage, hasn't there, of, of Christians that try to make it work because we're not supposed to look at this exact science, and, yeah. you know, and, and sweep it away. And we're not saying to do that. We're just saying not all the data's in. No. And there are some excellent presentations for young Earth. Uh, we don't have to do that right now. Let's uh, let's move on. What do we have to do next? All right. What we have next is the primordial soup, or the primeval stew, as I first mentioned <laughs> in the intro. Which just, I already ate dinner tonight, and that is not <laughs> sitting well. Well, that's what scientists call it, Josh. <laughs> okay. And this would be that initial sludge bit where the very first replicator turned into what Richard Dawkins titled the selfish gene. And I'm pretty sure that we all know the story from science class, but things have actually changed a lot in the last couple decades on what scientists believe started this whole mess. Yeah, from what I remember, it was called the Miller-Urey Experiment, where they mimicked what they thought the early conditions of Earth was like, and then after days of this experiment, they observed organic compounds form, and some of them even contained amino acids. And amino acids, as we all know, are subunits of proteins. That's right. And this experiment was conducted in the 50s. 
some textbooks still teach it. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's outdated. Yeah. Um, maybe not, not a lot, but I, I still hear it sometimes. But a, a lot of things have been discovered since then. And believe it or not, the new data has raised more questions than answers. And the reason is the complexity of the cell. Ooh, yes, that's right. What scientists have uncovered in the cell has actually proved more in favor of a creator than evolution by far. So why don't we start off by saying that amino acids are no longer believed to be the first replicators. The next candidate offered was DNA and then RNA. But as we're going to see, it makes no sense whatsoever that any of these could even exist by themselves. It's literally impossible when we see how scientists have discovered how they work. Yet, we still have experts telling us things like Jerry A. Coyne writes in his book, Why Evolution is True. For the process... For the process of evolution, natural selection, the mechanism that drove the first naked replicating molecule into the diversity of millions of fossil and living forms is a mechanism of staggering simplicity and beauty. Well, I'm actually glad that you quoted Mr. Coyne there because he says something very interesting in that quote. Coyne references natural selection as the mechanism that drove the first replicating molecule into what we see today. The problem with that is natural selection itself. And feel free to look this up, listener, but natural selection only works on living organisms. And scientists have now discovered that these things that they claim to be the first replicators are 100% not alive by themselves. Wow. Yeah, and if you have studied evolution at any reasonable depth, then you know without natural selection, there is absolutely no evolution. So you're telling me that if evolutionists continue to hold on to their current theories of chemical evolution, then they must either admit that life first emerged with no help from natural selection slash evolution, or they must explain the complex existence of DNA, RNA, and the rest of the gang, which are all dependent upon each other to even exist? That's exactly right. Well, on that note, I did find an interesting fact from a mathematician who has looked into this dilemma by the name of John Lennox, and he writes this, The incredibly precise duplication of DNA is not accomplished by the DNA alone. It depends on the presence of the living cell. In its normal surroundings in the cell, the DNA replicates within the cell roughly one error in 3 billion nucleotides. Remember, the human genome is about 3 billion nucleotides long. However, on its own in a test tube, the error rate rises dramatically about 1 in 100. So, not only does what Mr. Lennox just said speak to the irreducible complexity of the cell and DNA's place within that cell, which would be its nucleus. (laughs) (laughs) Nucleus. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But it also shows how DNA would react apart from the cell, which would be self-destructive eventually. That's correct. And what you just said is key to understanding that there is no other explanation for what we see than accepting that there is a creator. And that term is irreducible complexity, which means that if any of these collective pieces of this molecular factory are missing apart from the others, then it is impossible for any of them to exist at all. And to prove this out, let's take a quick look at how they work together. Now, as we have mentioned, the theories of what the first replicator was just jumped around several different contenders. The amino acids, 
the 50s, um, proteins, DNA, RNA. And if you've been scratching your head so far, not knowing the relationship between these candidates, we're going to clear that up right here. And I'm sorry we're going so scientific, but this is a deep topic. <laughs> if you ever get the chance to watch the film Unlocking the Mystery of Life or Evolution's Achilles Hills, then you can see these processes that I'm about to explain through computer animation, and it really comes alive. But until then, let's just take a look at these. So... These are the steps that are needed to take place before natural selection can even be a topic. And remember, natural selection is what pushes with mutations evolution. Number one, making a protein, step one. The starting point for making a protein resides in the DNA, which is located in the nucleus of the cell. <laughs> the instructions for building every single protein in an organism reside within that double helix library. And in order to retrieve these instructions for protein assembly, a special molecular machine climbs to an exact location along the DNA spiral, like a librarian locating a book on hundreds of shelves, unzips the helix, revealing the specific instructions for a specific protein. Those instructions have been reformatted into something scientists call messenger RNA, and this process is called transcription. So it's like having our different files on the computer, MP3, PDF, Word documents, uh, every format serves a different purpose. Exactly. And after transcription, then comes translation. After the single-strand messenger RNA is ready for travel, it is then escorted to a doorway called a nuclear core complex, and it acts like a bouncer in a bar deciding who and what comes in and out of the <laughs> nucleus. I mean, that. I mean, think Papers. about... <laughs> Get that corn out of my face. Okay, so th th what we're describing here is, is incredible so far. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about something that goes and finds a piece of instruction that's coded in one thing, it decodes it, it's escorted to a door where something allows it to either go in or out or not. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to point to that quote back there where he said, it's beautifully simplistic. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's the point being made here. Yeah. So, um, the, the bar bouncer dude, he decides if it goes out of the nucleus. And it's at this point that the encrypted instructions get decoded by a ribosome into the language of proteins and are finally introduced to the amino acids. These amino acids are brought individually and specifically from other parts of the cell to be formed into chains, often hundreds of units long. After these chains are formed, the mid-processed proteins are then latched onto by molecules called chaperones, which protect the unfinished protein as it's transported to a molecule called a chaperonin which then folds the protein into its final form. If, after the amino acids, think letters, are arranged in the correct order, think sentences, then the chain will be folded into a functioning protein, think paragraph. The amino acids are then collapsed upon each other in a pre-programmed order, and they are folded into a certain structure, and that structure can perform a certain purpose. If the chain has a broken link anywhere or has a bad sentence or a bad word in the chain, hundreds of units long, then a defective chain is formed and will be demolished in the cell rather than folded into a protein. Oh, goodness. This is insane, is it not? It is. And we just want you to know that what was just described 
was a simplified account from DNA to protein. Yeah. The process uses intricate molecular machines to translate between two completely unrelated languages, which is the linear code of the DNA world to the three-dimensional code of the protein world. The entire progression is dependent upon precise instruction, and without this precision of order and direction, there is no protein, much less the endless information needed in guiding the proteins to conquer living organisms. That's exactly right. And mathematician David Berlinski once said this in an interview. Even Francis Crick, who with Watson discovered the structure of DNA when he started to think about the origins of life and the chemical constituency, he just threw his hands up after a while and just said, The accumulative improbabilities are so staggering that in all likelihood, life was sent here from outer space. <laughs> and Berlinski says, he's right. It's a better explanation than anything we've got. Golly. When this all breaks down, it's just so obvious that a creator created us. Things just don't fall into this kind of order. That's so true. It's, it's very obvious so, listener, we know we know that we really dove into the deep waters here at the very beginning of this stuff, but the main point that that we want you to understand is um, first off, for me, the, the huge point is this: all of this stuff over who knows how long they say it would happen before it even reached the point where natural selection could help out, which is evolution. All of this stuff happened; it would have to happen by chance. Natural selection wasn't around to help it out. And, and all of this is just too staggering to think there was no creator involved. Yeah. Well, and I hope your ears aren't smoking because your brain is fried because I know mine were, or mine are. Um, <laughs> see? See? Uh, yeah. If you see me on the street, even 20 episodes down the line from when we did these few, uh, you're going to be like, has your brain re, uh, recollected yet? I'll be like, no, it's still primordial stew or whatever. What would you call it? Yeah. Uh, Close enough. Oh, see, um, honestly, this is something that we feel very passionate about. And I, I even realized that in this first episode, we didn't quote, but one scripture and that's Mm -hmm. Genesis one, one. And the reason that we wanted to do that is because we feel like this is a battleground that we want to meet scientists on again, us not being experts, but presenting experts to say, Hey, why don't you guys duke it out and let facts be facts. And, you know, a lot of people view evolution as, you know, we, we came from monkeys see they have arms and fingers and toes and so do we and it's like we want to chip away at the foundation of it because if the foundation never exists then you don't even get to that later argument which Mm -hmm. still doesn't hold a candle in terms of creation so and remember this is this is part one and it was more of an introduction to the real discussion yes it really was because the next thing that that we're going to talk about is like the jump of species and how what happens once natural selection actually got here yeah and that that's just a whole nother wait what you know i mean this doesn't work and, and I guess the sad thing is, especially as you think of like Darwinianism, is the rejection of God. Yeah. And I mean, to be raised in a society that was so seeking God that he just outright rejected. And, and there are so many people that say you can choose faith or you can choose science, but God doesn't wants you to choose that. He wants you to choose both. He wants you to have faith in him and he wants you to study the science of what he created. 
Yeah, that's so true. And, and like that very first quote we started with, if a scientist is an atheist, that's going to affect his starting point for how he look, his worldview. Mm-hmm. And same with someone who, who, you know, science always says, well, we, we look at the data and we just go from there. And I, I beg to differ. I see, I see a lot more than that with scientists i see them pushing an agenda mm. and um not that we're we, we never put our faith in signs and wonders and facts and science we put our faith in god but it's important to josh and i that we that we know that our faith is not pointless it's no. not creation screams it had a creator yes. and there is evidence tangible evidence for that yes our faith is founded so yeah. exactly i mean to feel like it was foundationless would be would be such a uh, yeah, and, and there's hard questions out there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a one atheist, and he said, you know, the DNA is just too similar between us and monkeys, mm. and they they often point to that ninety eight percent similarity in DNA. But what people don't realize is we have genes similar to mice and bananas too Hmm. and we didn't come from that tree that family tree yeah and uh, even one um geneticist steve jones said this a chimp may share 98 percent of its dna with ourselves but it is not 98 percent human it is not human at all is a chimp and does the fact that we have genes in common with a mouse or a banana say anything about human nature some claim that genes will tell us what we really are the idea is absurd and that's from a geneticist. So, yeah, I get that there's hard questions out there, but um, uh, oftentimes people will, will cling to these regurgitated statements that they hear. And we at Snakebird say, hey, let's break those statements down and see if they hold water. Yeah. And, and like we said, it's not it's not our information. We're not the ex- experts. And at this point, I, I would just, and this is not uh, like a shameless plug for what I've done, but I have written a book called The Northern Project. And if you are curious about fact-checking some of the things we've said here, there's over 350 endnotes that you can actually go find the sources of all of this that we've just talked about from actual scientists, not us saying, you know, Josh and Steve, this is what is happening in science. It's not our info. It was a Google search. But, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia said that. But no, it, and if you are interested in, in checking that or, or checking out the book that I wrote, it's called The Northern Project on Amazon.com. You'll type in my name, Stephen M. Stewart, because I'm not a popular author. So you're <laughs> going to have to find it that way. The Northern Project, Stephen M. Stewart. And you can go and check this stuff. That's not me trying to sell books, believe me, because I make like 10 cents a book. Yeah. But it, it is uh, it's something that I am passionate about. I have been for a long time. And I I don't like just regurgitating things that I've heard. I've I, for a long time I regurgitated things that I heard from other Christians. I found some of them to be um, like very futile arguments. They're they're mm-hmm. not very good arguments. And I found that out doing the research for that book. So um, yeah, we want to break it down, make sure our faith holds water. We don't put our faith in that, but. It's nice to sometimes break it down and see, hey, there is some real evidence God is there. Yes. He does exist. Yeah. And this is all about getting that firm foundation as a snake bird. And if you need firepower, then actually having a good source and not just running to Google and not just running to, like Stephen said, the regurgitation of some of the statements that kind of just 
spin your tires in circles and things like that. Exactly. Yeah, I could. And, and I hope that you didn't get burned out on, on some of this. It, this does feel a little boggy. It bogs <laughs> us down a little bit. That It's that darn primordial sludge. You <laughs> there know? You it go. just bogs us down. Yeah. But, but the next, uh, we're not going to do an episode next week um, right after this on the next part of this series. We're going to give it a break because we don't want to break your brain <laughs> any more than I almost broke mine putting this together and Josh too. So um, we're going to take a break and go back to our normal topics and stuff, but we will address the next portion of this series. Um, I don't know. We'll discuss it. Yeah. But it's coming around the pike. Yes. But in the meantime, if this has made an impact with you and you listened and you were like, yeah, my my brain matter is running out my ears, but I really enjoyed what I heard and, and it actually gave me a better foundation for how to look at this or for even how to explain this maybe to an atheist friend or an evolutionist friend of mine, then we would really love to hear that feedback. And you can send that to our Facebook or even an email on our website, which is connect at basnakebird.com. We would really appreciate hearing from you on this because we would love to know if we're going in the correct direction to give you that foundation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Please share us. Please give us a review and a rating. Um, It helps more than you know. And uh, we just want to get the Snakebird podcast out there so that people can know their creator and uh, be in Jesus. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's it it is about the sixty six forty, but it's also about supporting that and about defending it. And and God has given Stephen a very specific gift and a very specific calling in some of the research that he's already done in this. So I encourage you to go out and look for that book if you're wanting to know more and you're wanting to get those exact sources. Yeah. So we we appreciate. Thank you for the kind words, Josh. Oh. <laughs> I'm all like, yeah, <laughs> that's nothing that came across wrong. But uh, no, I couldn't agree more about just our passion for for the reason we're doing this. And um, yeah, guys, reach out to us with um, with questions, feedback. Hey, maybe you didn't like this. Let us know. <laughs> we like more when you talk about the Bible, people. <laughs> Don't do them ones again. <laughs> I feel like no matter what we do going forward on creation, anytime we come to the word biology, we have to say biology. Biology. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Always remember, whatever you do. Wherever you go. No matter what life throws at you. There's never been a better time to follow the words of Jesus. And be a a snake snake bird. bird.